It is my pleasure to have Dr. Shauna Johnson on the Platinum Passport podcast. Shauna, I always enjoy your story. It is so inspirational. When did you know you wanted to be a doctor? <laughs> well, it started at the age of four. <laughs> this is back in the 70s. I was admitted to the hospital for pneumonia. And back then, if you got pneumonia as a child, you were admitted to the hospital, not for you know a day or two or go home with antibiotics. You, I was there for close to seven days. While I was in the hospital, I just really enjoyed all the care I received, how everybody was very attentive. My mom was a nurse too. So I happened to be mm -hmm. in the hospital where she was a nurse. So I'm not sure if I got a little extra attention because I was her <laughs> child, but it was a really great experience. I wasn't scared. I wasn't worried or anything. Like sometimes you think a child be afraid in the hospital. Mm -hmm. So they were like, oh, you know, you like being here. Do you want to, you want to do this when you grow up? And I was like, yeah. They're like, oh, you want to be a nurse? I was like, no, I want to be a doctor. I want to be like the men <laughs> telling everybody what to do. They're like, they fell out laughing. They're like, like, I want to be in charge. That was my first experience and first idea of wanting to become a doctor. And then when I was at the age of six, I had what was called an Achilles tendon that had to be released because it was so tight that I couldn't walk flat. So I actually walked around mm. on my tippy toes like a ballerina. They used to joke me and call me little ballerina, but <laughs> I had to have major reconstructive surgery and I had to learn to walk again. Mm. So again, healthcare experience between the surgeries, I had casts on my legs for six weeks. Then after the cast, had to learn to walk again. So experience with physical therapists. And that really opened my eyes to healthcare and all the parts that were involved with it. And when you decided that, yes, I want to be the one in charge, <laughs> <laughs> telling everyone what to do, a lot of times we'll feel that way at a young age. But then by the time we get to our teens or it's time for us to go to college, we've moved on to another dream. How did that particular dream remain with you even as you moved into adulthood? My mom being a nurse, she saw that I was really interested in being a doctor. So at the age of 13, she was like, well, since you want to be a doctor, you need to get experience at the hospital. So she signed me up to be a candy striper at the age oh, of 13. Wow. And it was a true blessing because I was able to be a candy striper at a hospital that was was all African-American hospital. Um, we mm -hmm. don't have it anymore, but it was called Newport News General. That experience definitely was the aha moment. When I got there and I told them I wanted to be a doctor, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up? Are you just volunteering to volunteer? It's like, no, I want to be a doctor. Mm -hmm. So they actually put me in the OR working with the ladies doing central sterilization. What? To clean the instruments and worked in the OR. And by me being there, as you can imagine, I was exposed to a lot of Black surgeons. And again, yeah. this is like the 80s by this time. And you, you didn't see that that often. I met my mentor, um, Dr. Alvin Bryant. From there, the first thing they were like, um, you sure you want to do this? You sure you can handle this? I'm like, oh, yeah, I can, sure, I can handle this. Blood doesn't bother me. <laughs> they got permission for me to observe a surgery. And that's exactly what, what I did. At yes. 13? Yes. And I did not pass out. And they were like, <laughs> oh, this is not bothering her at all. She's fine. She's got this. She's got this covered. That's how it all started. When you use the word candy striper, some of our audience might not even know what that word <laughs> means. <laughs> yes. What does that mean? 
So candy striper was a term they used to use back in the day for volunteers at the hospital. And the reason why they called us candy stripers is because we had on the uniform was a white dress with red stripes through it that looked like candy. So that's why it was called a candy striper. So <laughs> OR, that was the operating room? Yes, the operating room. When they saw that I could handle that and they were like, oh, this girl, you know, because I guess a lot of kids would get there and would freak out. So yes, yeah. blood, Shauna. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, they would be afraid. The surgeon actually said, okay, that's it. You're going to be a surgeon. So back then I really wow. thought I was going to be a surgeon. And after my experience with orthopedic surgery, I was like, yeah, I could see doing surgery. And that's the thing about medicine. Oftentimes people's decision in the field of medicine may change, but a lot of times the desire to, to become a doctor doesn't change. So even though I started off wanting to be a surgeon, you know, that morphed into wanting to be an OBGYN. And over time I decided I really wanted to do family medicine. When you graduated, what were you looking for in the colleges that you selected? The interesting thing is when I was applying for undergraduate, really only had one school in mind that I wanted really? to go to. I think that was influenced a lot by a god sister that I had that had gone to UVA, University of Virginia. Mm-hmm. And to be honest, that's the only school I really wanted to go to. I didn't even really think about any other undergraduate schools. As a matter of fact, I applied early decision and got in and didn't apply to any other schools. Wow, that's awesome. So with the early decision process, you apply early and once you get in, you agree that you're going to go there. So I just applied to that one school. And once I got in, that was it. So once you got to college, what was that college experience like for you? It was very difficult. It was very hard. Coming out of high school, as you can imagine, I was, you know, near the top of my class. I graduated mm-hmm. number eight in my class, highest honors. And high school was, you know, wasn't easy. You know, I had to study hard. I was in the governor's program. I'd done all those things to set myself to be in a good position to get into a school like UVA. Mm-hmm. And then when I got to UVA, it was very difficult. It was very hard. The study skills, the way I learned from high school, you know, get to college is a different ball game. I remember getting a C and was like, what's this? What's a C? Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> I remember thinking they must have done something wrong. And I remember one time, I, you know, this is again, at the beginning, I got like a 90 and they were like, oh yeah, you got to be minus. I'm like, in what world is a 90 of B minus? And they were like, <laughs> because, you know, there's a hundred other kids in the class with you and they're grading it on a curve. I guess the way they did it, it was like, okay, that was a B minus. I'm like, this is crazy. This is, you know, I struggled to get that 90 and it was the way of the world. The pre-med program at UVA was really hard on me. Mm -hmm. It was not what I was used to. I remember going to my advisors and telling them, you know, I'm really struggling here. This is not working out the way I expected it. And I'm studying, I'm going to office hours. I'm, I'm putting in the work. It's not like I'm goofing off. I'm studying all the time. Mm-hmm. I'm going to the office hours, meeting with professors, doing the extra tutoring sessions. And despite all of that, the grades were not the greatest. You know, they're B's and C's. And if you know going to med school, you can't go to med school with B's and C's. Um, I remember meeting with the um, pre-med advisor telling him I'm struggling. And he was like, well, you know, maybe you should consider doing something else. You know, medicine is not for you as evident by these grades. Maybe you should consider nursing or maybe you should consider teaching or something else. That's when I had the aha wake up moment of, no, I've wanted to be a doctor since I was a kid, since I was four. And I don't want to give it up at this point in my life. But more importantly, this just may not be the place for me because I know I'm smart. I know I have what it takes to do this. 
this is probably just not the place for me to be. I actually transferred to Hampton University. A lot of young people sometimes don't have the strength to be confident in the fact that no, it's not that I'm not smart. It's not that I don't deserve to be here at the University of Virginia. It's not that I'm not putting in the work. A lot of people would internalize that and feel like that it was more about them than about, no, maybe I just need to change my environment. Do you know why you were so certain that it's not about me? It's about this is not the right fit for me. To begin with, from high school, being in a supportive environment where I was taught you are good, you are smart. You know, I had a great high school, great teachers, great mentors. Like I talked yep. about earlier, parents that said, you can do this. And believe it or not, the person who really was in my ear the most telling me, you just need to go somewhere else, was my husband. He wasn't my husband then, but he was my boyfriend. <laughs> but wow. yes, yes. So my husband of 27 years, Wallace, he was at Norfolk State when I was at UVA. He said, you know, Shauna, I know that you're struggling. You just made me need to go somewhere else. And he he's the first one to put it in my head, to be honest with you. And I said, you know what? I think you're right. And then when I started mm -hmm. looking, I went ahead and actually put in the application to transfer to Hampton and they accepted me. And of course, I knew all about Hampton because this was my hometown. I had thought about Hampton before. And I will go back and say when I talked about other schools, you know, I thought about Hampton, but I was like, this is too close to home being from right. Hampton. I got to get away. <laughs> And I did think about another school that would have been my other top choice, and that was Spelman. But I remember Ooh. my best friend and I wanted to go to Spelman, but we made the joke, if we go to Spelman, we're going to come home and our parents are going to be on the stoop because Spelman was so, <laughs> so expensive. expensive. <laughs> my mom was saying, you really need to stick with a state school, something that, you know, we can afford to send you to and things like that. So that, that also played a role in the wanting to go to UVA. And I just thought about it. I said, you know what? I need to be in a supportive environment where... I'm going to be judged on what I do and not judged based on what other people do. Like I said, I put in the application for Hampton to transfer and it got accepted right away. And the irony, again, my boyfriend back then, now husband, <laughs> used my parents' car to come up there with the station wagon to get all my stuff to, to bring me back. Oh, that was a good home. boyfriend. <laughs> yeah, bring me back home. And I moved, of course, I moved back home with my parents, went to Hampton. And then I had that supportive environment, not only my parents, but my mentors were all down here. Mm -hmm. And then I get to Hampton, of course, it's a totally different experience. They wanted you to succeed. Yes, you're going to be a doctor. Yes, you can do this. Mm -hmm. What can we do to help you if you're struggling? And then I, it's not that it was easy. I still struggled. I had to study, but it was a definitely a much more supportive environment. I had a supportive community at UVA too. I don't want to say that I was part of the Black Voices Choir. I had um, my best friend roommate was also very supportive. It just wasn't for me because like my, my best friend and roommate, she was there undergrad pre-med. She did really well. She was a straight A student, mm -hmm. went on to UVA med school. Now she's a big time doctor at Duke. You know, she, oh, right. died, but it just didn't work for me. And that's the thing. I had other friends, they did fine. It just didn't work for me. I didn't want to give up on my dreams. So at Hampton was a different experience. Again, you put in the work, we're going to help you. We're going to make sure you succeed. And so that's exactly what happened. Finished Hampton again, top of my class was, you know, med school application time. And that was very interesting experience because when it comes to medical schools, they look at, okay, you started at a UVA and then you transferred. What was the reason for the transfer? Oh, we could see the grades. You know, you were mm -hmm. struggling. We could see you went to another school and you did much better. 
but how do we know you're going to be able to cut it in med school? How do we know you can do graduate work? So when I applied to med schools, and this time, of course, as you can imagine, you apply to multiple med schools. And one of the things I always did during this journey is I always pray to God, God, direct my steps where you want me to go. Mm-hmm. And even when it came to med schools, I was like, God, I just need you to make it plain. This is what you want me to do and where you want me to go. Make it plain as day. Mm-hmm. You got to be careful when you plan that pray because guess what? <laughs> He's going to make it plain as day. <laughs> Because that's exactly what happened. I ended up not getting into any med schools. UVA, of course, I applied there. They put me on the wait list. But everybody else kind of was like, no, you know, try again next year type thing. How did you feel with that? Did your dream begin to waver then at all or no? No, because I knew a lot of people that, you know, didn't get in med school the first time. Okay. There's a lot of people that had to reapply. I mean, of course, there are people like my old roommate that got in right away. But right. for a lot of people, it is a, you know, one to two year process. For some people, when they don't get in their first year, they do, you know, post programs, they get master's. So I knew that that was part of the process. I wasn't deterred. It was just a matter of, okay, what's my next step going to be? Um, because again, I'm not giving up on the dream of being a physician, mm-hmm. um, the path is not going to be straight. It's going to be a little bit curved, but which way are we going to get to that final destination? I get all these letters in the mail and it's, and it's ironic because I have all those rejection letters in a folder in my closet and I periodically look at them now. Do you um, really? Yes, I, I kept them all. But UVA put me on their wait list, which I was like, okay, that's encouraging. I guess about two weeks after I got put on the wait list, I was approached about their post-bac program. Their post-bac program was a program that was targeting minorities for med school. And the whole point of it was to do the program. And if you succeeded with the program and kept a certain GPA, you would then have a spot the following year in their medical school. And it also came with tuition covered. What? Yes. So um, because this was a grant through the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. And so, of course, I knew about this program when I was applying. So when I got on the wait list, you know, I was hoping that I would be selected as a possible candidate for the post program. Sure enough, when I got it and they were like, you know, if you do take the post program, you have to come off the wait list, you know, but mm-hmm. if you're on the wait list, there's no guarantee that you're going to get in either. So I was like, nope, I will get off the wait list and I will join the post program. I did the post program at UVA and um, it was a year-long program where it worked on strengthening your study skills. And we took graduate level courses. We also strengthened our sciences just to make sure you really were a candidate. Because again, they saw someone who struggled as an undergrad, but then transferred to another school, did well. They wanted to really see, could I do what it takes? Finished the program, got the GPA that was required. The month after finishing the program, I got married. (laughs) (laughs) To that sweet boyfriend. I was going to say to the the boyfriend that was always your biggest supporter, one of your biggest supporters. That is amazing. Oh, my goodness. So you ended up going back to the University of Virginia. For the post-bac program. Mm -hmm. For that program. And then you were accepted into their med school. The following year. Yep. So I finished the program that summer and we started that fall in the medical school. That is such an awesome story because it wasn't the right fit for you for undergraduate, but yet and still it became the perfect fit for you as you continue to move towards your dream. How did you feel when you went back to the University of Virginia? 
you know, there was a little bit of angst of, oh, can I do this? Um, mm-hmm. And when, when I did the post-bac program, you know, it was totally fine. But when, when I actually got to the med school, it was like, this is where I've been wanting to be all, you know, I've been planning for this for, you know, 20 <laughs> odd years. This is, and I'm here. And to be honest with you, Quinny, that first four to six weeks, mm-hmm. I felt overwhelmed. I felt burnt out. I felt tired. Because you got to remember, I had done undergrad. And because of the transfer from UVA to Hampton, I had to do like an extra semester. So here we go, you know, four and a half years undergrad, a post-bac program. When it's all said and done, you know, you're talking close to six years of work. I was burnt out and tired. So in that first four weeks, I couldn't do the work. I need a break. And, and mind you, the environment was very supportive. We want we want you to succeed. We know right. that you belong here. We want you to succeed. We'll do whatever it takes to help you succeed. I actually went to the dean and the folks in charge and I said, I got to take a break. I said, I'm just starting and I'm already burnt out. I said, I know it's because I literally did all these things. And mind you, the post-bac was year round. So it wasn't like I had a summer off. I literally back to back and not to mention, I had just gotten married and it was just a lot. I went to them and I said, I just need to take a year off. And they're like, okay, no problem. They said, because you actually started, you have four years to come back. Don't worry about it. When you're ready to come back, just let us know. I said, okay. So sometimes you gotta take a break. Sometimes you gotta just refocus, just kind of decompress. And in in a lot of people's mind, the question became, is she really going to come back? Is she really going to come back? Mm -hmm. Even family members, you know, what question you dropped out. I said, no, I just need to take a break. I took basically a year and a half off. And when I told them I was ready to come back, they said, well, we just want to kind of interview to you to see what's going on and make sure you're really ready. So when I came in, they were like, first of all, we're surprised to see you. I said, why is that? They said, because (laughs) most of the folks who say they're going to come back, they don't. And there were some other, yeah, yeah. And there was actually some Mm -hmm. other people who had stopped when I stopped that didn't come back that were part of my original class. And I said, no, I, I was always planning to come back. I just needed to clear my head. And I always tell people about this during that time that I was away, I actually taught school. My husband, by the way, was living in North Carolina when I was living in Virginia. So I went down to North Carolina to be with him. So during that time I had to work. So I worked teaching school. What did you teach? Eighth grade science. Oh, that's so cool. (laughs) And the other thing is that also catapulted me to know that I can't teach. I gotta go back to med school. I can't do this. I cannot be a teacher. I was like, that, that, this is not gonna work for me. And sometimes in your head, you always think, well, I can do this if this doesn't work right, out. You right. know? And that teacher thing was in the back of my head. Oh, you can always teach if you know the medicine, you know. And, but that was a great thing because I realized, no, yep, I can't do this. Mm-hmm. I can't do it. I did it for the year and I was like, nope, can't do this. <laughs> can't be a teacher. So when I got to med school, it was like, remember, you can't go back to teaching. <laughs> so it was your motivation to stay in school. Yes. And that's why my hat goes off to teachers because I don't know how they do it. I really right, don't. Right. Yeah. That, it's amazing what they deal with and the students. I mean, I, I can even say that now based on my own kids. Like, okay, I really feel for the teacher. <laughs> Takes a special person. Yeah, it really does because it's a lot that they deal with. So going back to med school, they said, we're glad you're back. What can we do again to make sure that you succeed this time? And what is it that you need? I said, one thing that would help me is if I didn't have to come back and do the anatomy, physiology, you know, the dissection lab mm-hmm. with everything else. I said, if there's a way, they were like, well, yes. So they allowed me to go to summer school and do that before I came back in the fall. 
And I did that at Georgetown. And again, that was really helpful for me. That really made a difference. And so when I came back, I was able to focus in on just the classes because they wanted me to succeed. And sometimes, like I, I say, your journey doesn't have to be the way that everybody else does it. It has to be what works for you. That made all the difference in the world. And, and it was still a struggle. It was still hard. I, you know, studied, put in the work, as we say, I did all those things, but it was still a struggle. It was still very hard. The thing I love about your story and it's consistent throughout is your confidence in yourself and your self-awareness, the ability to say, I need some time off to come back because Sometimes people will feel burnout. They will feel listless and like they can't concentrate and connect, but feel as if that is not an option to go to people and say, listen, I just need a time out. Can you provide that for me? That was key. And then when you did come back to say, you know what, can I do my anatomy class in a separate <laughs> time frame than doing the classes. And a lot of times, if you don't ask, you don't know what the answer is going to be. And every time you have the courage to say, this is what I need. And every time you got what you needed, but so many people suffer in silence and won't ask for what mm -hmm. they need. And then it makes them unable to be successful in their dreams. I love that about your story. Now, I know that you graduated from med school and then did you just go out and find your dream job just like that? How did that work? <laughs> so, <laughs> by the time I got to the end of med school, I decided I didn't, I was really headed toward OBGYN, but then by then I had a child mm -hmm. and I realized that the lifestyle of an OBGYN just was not going to work with being married and a child. Because back then, the minute you had a, a baby, you had to just drop everything. And I remember I had a longitudinal patient and I finally had a weekend off. I hadn't, hadn't had a weekend off in like two months. <laughs> Man, my daughter had something planned. And guess what? That pager goes off. Your patient is in labor. And at which meant I had to go to the hospital. That's when it hit me. And then I started doing some, you know, soul searching. Why did I go into medicine to begin with? Why did I want to be a doctor to begin with? And I said, yeah, I want to help people. But one of the things that drew me into medicine were the disease process like diabetes, hypertension. But I liked doing women's health. I liked kids. So when I realized I really liked all these things, I realized family medicine was what I wanted to do mm -hmm. because I can do all those things in that specialty. A lot of times with specialists, you get so focused in on your field, you don't get to do anything else. And I'm one of those people, I like to do a lot of different things. So that's why family worked so well for me, as opposed to like, for example, internal medicine and then going into cardiology, you're just strictly doing cardiology. But with family medicine, I do cardiology, I do pulmonary, I do women's health. I see newborns. My youngest patient is two months old. My oldest Aww. patient is 102 years oh, old. So goodness. I love that. I love seeing kids throughout the day and then seeing my 90 year olds. That's the beautiful part about family medicine. So when you're in med school, you apply for a residency program and you have to quote match. So it's not like you apply and you go where you want to be. You mm -hmm. put your top choice, they put their top people and they see where you match. When I did the interview process, being from that Tyworry area, we decided, my husband and I, since we had the child, we decided we'd come back to be near family for residency. There's three family medicine programs here in the area. 
there's two through EVMS and then one through Riverside. Um, and we moved back to Norfolk because we had a home in Norfolk. In my mind, I was thinking, oh yeah, I'll go to one of the EVMS programs. But when I interviewed, I really just really fell in love with the Riverside. It was a community program. And I was very familiar with Riverside because that's the hospital system that I, I kind of knew from growing up as a kid. Right. Um, it was one of the major health systems in the Hampton Newport News area. And so when I did the interview and met with the people, it felt like home. And several of the attendings had also gone to UVA and they're like, you know, we'd really like to have you here. We think you'd be a great fit here. So sure enough, when the match came, I ranked them high. They ranked me high enough. So I matched there. And then I did my residency. I completed my residency through Riverside. And at the end of residency, my husband and I were, you know, again, you're applying to where you're going to work. And so you start looking, you know, toward the end of your second year. And we were headed to Atlanta. We were, right. we were Atlanta bound. Yes, we were Atlanta bound. Matter of fact, we were interviewing, had job offers because, you know, he had he's an occupational therapist and he had to, you know, look for jobs. And so when we were interviewing health systems, they were like, yeah, we can offer both of you jobs. But my parents, our family members like, no, we enjoy having you guys here. Don't leave the area. Don't leave us. Um, and I was like, but I'm ready to go. I'm ready to get back <laughs> out of that was Atlanta. We had friends in Atlanta. Just love that whole ATL vibe. Nothing like Hotlanta. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was just calling us. And I remember I was doing an interview. They had flown us down there, me and Wallace, and we were mm-hmm. interviewing and checking it out. And my father fell and broke his arm. And I just couldn't jump in the car and get to him. And that was the wake-up call. Aha. Mm-hmm. You can't just, that's a long way away. We get back from Atlanta's that trip, that interview, and Wallace is like, I already know you don't want to move to Atlanta. <laughs> And it was funny because he didn't want to move to Atlanta to begin with. I'm the one that convinced him. And then all of a sudden, I'm saying I'm changing my mind. He was like, if you're going to do Atlanta, now's the time to do it. If you're not, this is it, you know, (laughs) because once you get settled, you're kind of there, you know. Mm -hmm. So here we are. We're making this decision. This is like March. I'm going to graduate in two months and I don't have a job. Okay, I'm going to stay. So I went to Riverside and said, okay, I've, you know, decided to stay. They're like, we don't have any more openings. We, you know, all our openings have gone. And I was like, oh my goodness. So, you know, I'm talking to some folks and then I was walking out to my car and I ran into one of the um, nurses who had been working for Riverside for years and years and years. And I said, yeah. She goes, what are you doing? Are you going to Atlanta? I said, well, no, we just decided that we wanted to stay, but I'm understanding Riverside doesn't have any positions. She goes, oh, don't you worry about that. We're going to find a position for you. And I wasn't worried about finding a job, but it was just like, it would be nice to work for the health system that trained me and stuff. Exactly. And And it's all about timing. Everything is about timing. Mm-hmm. My whole life, my whole journey, you know, even the post-bac program, everything was about timing. When I spoke to that nurse, she spoke to somebody. Literally the next day, no, a young lady decided that she wasn't going to work at Riverside anymore, not because she didn't want to, but, but her husband had just matched and they were moving back to Ohio. Her, so her husband had just finished and he had to do his training and they were going to go back to Ohio, which is what they wanted. The position she had at one of the clinics opened up and they told me about it. And then they said, and then another clinic position, they just expanded. And so there was two openings. So they were like, we're going to interview you. Which one do you want to go to? And the interesting thing, Clinice, is never my life. You know, normally when you interview for a job, they're like, okay, you'll get back to you. So after I interviewed at the practice, which is where I'm now, I was walking to my car and they were like, yeah, we'll get back to you. And I was walking to my car. And as I'm walking to the car, the director comes out and goes, oh, they want you. What? They didn't even let me get to the car. And like, <laughs> I was like, I was like, I'm not happy my life. Like, you're like, you're I was like, oh, okay, we'll let you know. We'll let you know. 
so I get to the car and they're like, oh yeah, we want you. We're, we ready for you. Here's the contract. He signed. I was like, okay, God. And it was great because I had interviewed at the other practice too, but I really wanted that practice. I was oh, like, this is where I want to be. Goodness. I want to be at this practice. And it was funny because it was like, I was like, okay, it's nice to be, you know, wanted. Every time I hear your story, it is so inspirational to me on so many levels. So to know that you didn't even make it to the car <laughs> without them running out going, no, come back. You're in. You're the one. It's just so amazing. And it speaks volumes to the years that went into the reality of that dream. Isn't that just amazing? It is. And I'm still at that practice today. You know, no. that, that was my beginning. Yes, that, that was my, as I say, first job out of residency, but it was a great fit. It was a great practice. And it was a blessing because a lot of the teachers who were my teachers, I'm now their doctor. A lot of people that I grew up with, friends that I, you know, grew up with in mm -hmm. high school because I'm in my hometown. And so there's something about being a family medicine doctor in your hometown where you grew up being able to, and I often joke, you know, some of my patients are like, she changed my diapers. And now, you know, it's like, <laughs> it's been a really good experience. And as you can imagine, as a family doctor, you're, you're with people and there's been deaths, you know, we talk about COVID-19, you know, I've lost several patients during COVID and, you know, even post COVID, you know, people died for no, not, not due to COVID, but for other reasons. I just lost a patient this past week mm. and looked back, I, you know, I, I had been taking care of him for close to 20 years. There's you know, the moments of joy when you help family with the two month old, you know, and they're excited because they, you, you get the burst, but, and then the excitement when someone gets married and they bring their spouse to you and, you know, you're right. part of the family, <laughs> but then there's a sad moment, you know, when you have yeah. the husband and wife that both died from COVID and the, the daughter is so sad because both her parents are now gone. I wouldn't change anything for the world. I really enjoy what I do. I enjoy practicing family medicine. I know this is what I was supposed to do. Absolutely. How long have you been practicing? This year will be 20 years. Unbelievable. Well, congratulations. And I'm so glad that you were persistent because it just appears that this is a calling for you. And I know that your patients, some of the patients that you have, I know, and they are very happy that you are their doctor. And it leads me to the question, one of the things that people will say from time to time is, I don't think I need a doctor. Why do you think it is important to have a good doctor beyond just the obvious? Why do we need that relationship in our lives? So a primary care doctor is your first step in your health. It's interesting because I'll have patients come and say, oh, can you just put a referral in for, I know, I know this is what I need. I'm like, but well, we're not sure. Why don't you mm -hmm. come in and let me evaluate you and make the right decision? Because oftentimes people think it's one thing and then we're directing them to where they really need to go. That's when you have a problem, but there's so much preventative health care. You know, we do labs. I have patients that unfortunately I diagnose with breast cancer or I diagnose with prostate cancer because I'm doing routine labs or routine screenings. And they, they often joke me about me being all on top of them about doing their screening. <laughs> Oh, Dr. Johnson, do I? Yes, you have to. They, they do. I was like, just, just do the test, you know? I said, because about screenings are about finding things early or not finding anything at all, but let's get it done. I'm a big advocate on cancer screenings. I myself am a breast cancer survivor um, for five years. Yes. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. So I am, I'm a big 
big person that pushes, you know, getting these things done. And those things are done usually through your primary care doctor. You know, we talk about the cancer, but then there's things like diabetes and hypertension and thyroid disease that, again, we check for routinely that you wouldn't know um, unless you came in and did your blood work. Um, And oftentimes with these conditions, if you wait till there's a problem, these conditions have gone too far. One of the big pushes we have right now through the CDC with our patients is finding people who are at risk for diabetes and preventing them from getting diabetes. You know, you think, so if I get someone that's pre-diabetic, it's like, we are going to do these things so that you don't become diabetic. So that takes starting a relationship and getting in and being seen again before there's a problem. Because by the time that you're going to the bathroom a lot and eating a lot and drinking a lot, diabetes is full-fledged at that point. So we're wanting to catch these things early. And so that's why that relationship is so important. And we didn't even get into the mental health side, you know, with COVID-19, seen a rampage of depression, anxiety, and the psychiatry referrals are backed up eight months, nine months. So getting wow. in most of the time that you can't wait that long to have your mental health taken care of. So you are seeing your primary care doctor. Um, we manage, again, that's the beautiful part about family maintenance. And we do a lot of different things and mental health is huge for us. You know, even though we have a psychiatrist who's telehealth in our practice, again, backed up. So those patients really rely on us to really help them with treating those problems. And Mm -hmm. then those cases that are more difficult and need more, we can refer out. And that goes true with all specialties. Some of those cardiac issues are a little bit more complicated. And then I refer them on to the specialist. So what do we need to look for when we are selecting our primary care doctor? I think the first thing is you have to have someone that you feel that you can connect with, mm-hmm. someone that you can talk to. Because if you get in and you can't talk to that doctor and tell them what's going on with you or ask or feel like you can't ask questions, that's not going to work for you. And, and, and it goes both ways. If you have a doctor that's asking you questions and you can't answer the questions and you can't be honest with them, it's not going to work. And it's, a, and it's a relationship. It is truly about a relationship between you and that person. And the doctor doesn't have to look like you. You know, we, we always talk about, well, I want to, and I have a lot of patients, I want a doctor to look like me. I get that. But at the same time, what matters is someone you can talk to. Okay. You know, and oftentimes people are like, well, I really want a female. And I get that. Or a male wants a male or, or a male sometimes mm-hmm. says, no, I want a female. Right, you got to right. get with what you're comfortable with. And so if you're only comfortable with someone that looks like you, that's where you start with. I get that. But the key thing, it's got to be someone you're comfortable with, someone that you're going to open up to and someone that can open up. Like I said, it's a two-way street. And you need someone that that truly cares about you and it cares about your health. And that's going to be evident with when they give you recommendations and tell you what should be done. You know, one of the things I tell my patients all the time is I'm going to tell you what I recommend, but it's up to you to, to do it or not. And then I'm always one of these people too. I'll say, well, I give patients two or three options. I said, you know, it's not like highway or dieway. It's, you know, I will say... <laughs> Your cholesterol's high. And they always laugh at me and say, your cholesterol's high. And I know you don't want to be on a medication for it. So we have two options. We can start with fish oil. We can start with a statin. Or you can change your diet. And whatever we do, we'll come back in four months or six months and see where your numbers are. And so I'll have those that say, okay, I'm going to change my diet. I'm going to exercise. I'm going to do what's right. And I'll come back in four months. And I'll, and I'll do a little fish oil too. And I'll come back in four months. And they come back in four months. The cholesterol is better. I'm like, okay, we'll keep washing it and see how you do. Others come back on cholesterol is even higher. And I'm like, they're like, I already know. Just write the script. Fat and I already know that's where we're going. You've already told me. Patients are wanting to have control over decisions. 
So it's important that they have buy-in to whatever plan you're going to have, because if they don't have buy-in, they're not going to follow through. And oftentimes they'll leave the room and say, okay, I'm going to take it. And then they get home and they don't, Mm -hmm. and they'll try again. And they'll come back and say, I didn't do it. And, and, and I tell them all the time, you're the decider. This is your body. You get to make decision. I'm here to help guide you. But ultimately, it's your decision. You know, it's not a dictatorship when it comes to that. I loved how you talked about that partnership between the doctor and the patient. And that is a unique way to look at it because sometimes I know I've had experiences with doctors where they act like they could care less (laughs) about what I'm saying, or they don't even come close to me. It's, It's like, there's no personal engagement. Is there anything else that you think is important for us as patients, as we are looking for a good primary care doctor that should be on our radar screen? Again, somebody you're feeling comfortable with. And it goes both ways because there have been times that if you're not trusting me to have your best interest, then maybe you should find a doctor where you feel that way. We always want to make things work. We always want to try, but there's that whole ego thing sometimes with physicians. (laughs) But I've always felt like if it's not a good fit, I'd rather that person goes somewhere where they're feeling comfortable, where they feel like they have a good fit and let them see another provider. And that happens sometimes even within the own practice. You know, I've had patients that just said, you know what, I don't like the way Dr. Johnson does it. I'd rather see another doctor. And it goes both ways. They didn't like the other doctor. They've come to me. Right. And I think take the ego out of it. Just make sure the patient is happy with where they are. Because oh. ultimately, that's where you're going to get the best response when the patient is in a, in a comfortable environment. Exactly. I recognize that there are specific health issues that requires doctor's visits. But if we're in generally good health, what should we be thinking about as far as visiting the doctor? So if you're completely healthy with no conditions, you should see the doctor once a year for annual physical exam for them to do all that screening test and blood work. And that's generally the people under the age of 40, 45. When we get to about 40, 45, we start to pick up health conditions. And so Again, you're right. Depending on what health conditions you have, that determines how often you should see the doctor. Someone with diabetes is going to be seen every three to four months, whereas someone who just has a thyroid disease could get away with being seen once a year if it's stable. So that will be determined by the doctor based on the conditions that you have. Generally speaking, at least once a year for a general physical. What are some best practices for health and wellness during the summer seasons? I think... When we talk about the spring and summer, we always think about seasonal allergies. We think about this time of year, pollen is bothering people. As I always tell my patients, you know, this time of the year, you know, you have trouble with pollen. Don't wait till it starts bothering you. Be proactive. The first of March, before we see the pollen, start your allergy meds. So that's a good proactive approach. We tend to do more physicals in the spring and summer than we do in the winter months. September, October through March. Usually are mainly sick visits, people coming in with colds, coughs, COVID, you know, those, the flu, um, pneumonia. And then there's just, again, people with chronic conditions that are seen throughout the year for their routine follow-ups. In the course of a day, my schedule is, I would say, 90% full of people coming in for follow-ups for their chronic conditions, you know, whether it's hypertension, diabetes, thyroid disease. And then, you know, I might have 5% annual physicals. 
and then 5% are for acute sicknesses. You've spoken today about so many things that you enjoy. What do you find most rewarding about the work that you do on a daily basis? I enjoy helping people. I enjoy making a difference in people's lives. That is probably the most rewarding part. This Platinum Passport Guest Travelogue brought to you by the Platinum Group. So I am going to start with what has been your favorite trip location? My favorite travel trip was, I would say, was probably to Hawaii. Mm -hmm. We have not been traveling because of COVID. Right. Matter of fact, I hadn't really been traveling before 2017. But now that, you know, last summer with things kind of lifting, we took a trip to Hawaii, the whole family. So oh. that's probably my uh, most favorite trip. My husband and I alone, no kids, went to Puerto Rico. I really oh. enjoyed that as well. Oh, nice. So those are two of our most recent trips. That's great. <laughs> favorite traveling accessory. I don't know about that one, please. <laughs> One of the things I do love that my husband bought me a couple Christmases ago, he knows I like Michael Kors, so he bought me a Michael Kors uh, luggage set. I okay. guess that's my favorite travel that accessory. That is your <laughs> And good job, Wallace, again. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> so your favorite traveling companion, this is multiple choice, and you can choose more than one, okay? Well, I only have one favorite traveling person. That's Wallace. <laughs> <laughs> Never mind. I'm not going to ask the rest. <laughs> it's just Wallace. No, because I'll be honest with you. Prior to this, we did all our trips as a family. Mm -hmm. And 90% of traveling was driving. Oh. Um, we didn't do a lot of flying. We, we really just drove everywhere. We had not put our 19-year-old on the plane yet. So last year when we went to Hawaii, that's the first time he had been on the plane. Wow. So now that we've gotten past the plane thing, we're starting to fly more. But the other thing is they're adults now. The kids are, are grown. So we're able to take trips with just the two of us. So we are enjoying that now. So going to places like we went to Tampa last weekend, just the two of us, you know? Aww. So getting out for different things when it's just he and I has been nice. All right, I'm gonna let you just say your love. That's fine. <laughs> All right, what's your travel ID? And I'm gonna give you a couple of options and then it can be more than one or just one. Are you an explorer? Are you a chill and relaxed type person? Are you an adventurer, culture craver, or foodie? All of the above. <laughs> <laughs> That's my favorite answer. <laughs> For example, when we went to Hawaii, mm -hmm. we went to the Jeep and drove throughout the entire island, <gasps> but we also went to the beach and hung out. And we also went to multiple different restaurants in town, out of town, at oh, the resort, but goodness. not at the resort. So that's the adventure part. That's the trying. And I'm a foodie because I want to try all different types of foods from different places. But there are vacations like this weekend with we Tampa. I didn't do anything. I just relaxed all the time. So it depends. Sometimes I just want to sit by the pool or sit by the beach and just do nothing. Yep. And there are the times when I want to go out. And it just depends on the vacation. This is the final question. What is your dream destination? Paris. Ooh, wee wee. <laughs> So you're going to get there. I have no doubt. <laughs> yeah, I took seven years of French and that's on my bucket list. Oh my goodness, Shauna. Mm -hmm. Are you still fluent? Do you still remember? I'm a little rusty right now. I remember a lot of things, but if you don't use it, you lose it. So I don't have anybody here I can speak it with. <laughs> I did not know that about you. 
I should have done Spanish though, because I would have had more use for that. <laughs> that is amazing. Yeah. Well, I am so thrilled that we had this time together. Thank you so much for the work that you do and for being on the Platinum Passport podcast. Your Platinum Passport has been stamped. I look forward to seeing you at our next destination.